Episode 21 of the State of the Old Republic podcast was originally recorded on January 16th, 2017. It's the State of the Old Republic podcast. This week, Bioware responds to the fractured uprising bug. Will they take actions against players who took advantage of it? I'll let you know. Also this week, I'll talk about the hammerhead corvettes used in Rogue One and give you the scoop on how they came to be in the film. And finally this week, I'll continue my Knights of the Eternal Throne deep dive as I walk you through Chapter 2, Wrath and Ruin. And with that, it's time to make the jump to light speed and check out the State of the Old Republic. Well, welcome to Episode 21 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and as you heard in the opening, I have another fantastic show lined up for you today. First, as always, let's review some announcements for the Old Republic And not much this week for announcements. Life Day, the five-year anniversary, the character transfer sales, all are done and over with. So I hope everyone enjoyed those and got everything they were hoping to get out of it. Uh, Just as a reminder, that game update 5.1 will release on January the 24th. And there will be a producer's live stream on January 26th where they'll talk about some of the future yet-to-be-named content for the Old Republic. In fact, a note to self, speculate on what they might talk about next week. And now I would like to offer up a huge thank you to the gang over at the Passionately Casual podcast who gave me a wonderful shout-out on their most recent episode. If you're not already listening to them, what are you waiting for? After you're done here, of course. Uh, they were extremely kind in their words to the point where you'd think I had compromising material on them that I was poised to release with the push of a button. Let me just say once and for all, the rumors of me having video of you guys clicking your abilities is completely false. Uh, I'd also like to do a shout out of my own. And this is to someone I follow on Twitter, uh, who goes by, uh, Vasmi Gaming. And over the weekend, Vasmi hit command rank 300. That's right, 300. That's an incredible achievement and worthy of congratulations. So, ask me if you're listening, well earned, and please do not tell Bioware. The rest of us are still slogging through through this and think it's too slow. I'm only at rank 35. So, if Bioware knows that you're done and we complain to them, they'll just point to your achievement and tell us to move along as everything is working as intended. And speaking of working as intended, it's now time to slice the holonet and go over the news this week. And I want to talk about the fractured uprising bug slash exploit. And last week I talked about it and the official, I talked about it and the official response that Eric Musco gave to Corellia Run Radio. Since then, Eric Musco took to the forums and responded further. Here is what he said. Hey folks, let's talk about the fractured uprising in the current bug that exists in it. There is currently an issue where the first boss, Lord Anril, where in certain situations he will instantly kill himself. This has raised quite a few questions, so we want to address them. 
Is it an exploit to use the bug to progress quicker through the uprising? Yes, it is. You are using a bug to gain an unintended advantage over other players. Does this mean I'm going to get banned for doing it? In this case, we are not going to take action against individuals who use this exploit. There are two reasons. First, the fractured uprising, regardless of this exploit, is one of the best sources of CXP compared to other uprisings. Players who care solely about gaining command ranks as fast as possible would likely be grinding this uprising anyway. Second, it is possible that this bug can happen on its own without someone trying to make it happen, and although we could tell the difference between accidental use and constant abuse, we don't want to punish people for simply playing an uprising with no intention of exploiting. When will it be fixed? Currently, the bug with Lord Anril is slated to be fixed on 124 with game update 5.1. My default reminder, if you discover an exploit, please let us know privately and immediately stop using it. Although we will not take action against this exploit, the rules I outlined here are still in place. Should an exploit be discovered, please refrain from using it or risk action being taken against you up to and including account closures. Thanks, everyone. Eric. So here's my, my thoughts on this. I, I mean, as far as what is an exploit and how should they be handled, I believe that all exploits should be created equal, but that all punishments should not, but that all exploits should be punishable offenses. Exploits are serious offenses that defy the spirit of the game, and they are where the few receive a notable and or sizable advantage for their nefarious efforts while those who play by the rules get left behind. If this MPC, in this case Lord Anril, dropped any manner of loot, such as a schematic, or armor, or crafting material, or a mount, if it dropped CXP pack items, such as a small, medium, or large, believe me, actions would be forthcoming. But it didn't. And I think Bioware is doing the right thing by not taking actions against players. They tossed what looked like a giant chunk of meat in front of a pack of starving wolves and said, Don't eat. You should be hunting for your food. Well, as it turned out, we still had to hunt, right? While this tasted good, it offered no nutritional value, and we still had to focus on the other boss that dropped the goods. If anything, this helped people in that more players were running uprisings, and the chances of you getting in a group that was doing the fractured uprising was much higher. The only way you were missing out is if you didn't run this uprising at all. If you ran it using the bug, you really didn't come out further ahead than those running it the way it was intended. What it did do was cause stress and bad player collisions from those who wanted to cheat and those who wanted to play fair. But back to my original point about exploits, if you aren't planning to take action, then don't call this an exploit. Call it what it is, an unfortunate bug that you plan to fix soon and take ownership for creating it. By calling it an exploit and not doing anything other than fixing it, in an upcoming patch by the way, not even hot fixing it, like getting it out there as quick as possible, you're sending a mixed message, and the next time we see something similar, players will be less likely to cease and desist because there's a chance, at least in their minds, that they won't get punished. I don't like cheating. I don't even like skipping trash, which is not treating, and that, that's a topic for another day, and I, I'll explain that to some other show. Um, but I, I just feel like in this case, by calling it an exploit and not doing anything about it other than fixing it, you're kind of sending this mixed message, and I think you'd be better off not calling it an exploit, just calling it a bug, even downplaying it, because essentially you're saying, hey, 
this is an exploit. Exploits are bad, but keep on keeping on. But go ahead and use this one, and then we'll get it fixed when it's convenient for us to, to get it fixed. And I just think that's the wrong approach to take when it comes to handling exploits. Again, I think all exploits should be created equal, but not all punishments, and that all exploits should be punishable offenses. So that's my thoughts on the Fractured Uprising. My next topic for today is Rogue One and the use of the Hammerhead Corvettes. And yes, this is related to the Old Republic. So I'm sure like me, when you first saw the Hammerhead Corvettes you in Rogue One, you immediately thought of the Old Republic as this style of ship, maybe not a Corvette per se, but a Hammerhead design is found all over the place. In fact, the Endar Spire from Knights of the Old Republic was a Hammerhead ship. And they're everywhere. You don't have to search very hard to find Hammerhead-class ships in the game. So when I saw these ships in Rogue One, I thought, wow, the makers of the film really went all out and made this a true celebration of Star Wars and pulled ideas from and connected to all areas of the Star Wars universe. And then when I saw the Hammerhead Corvette get a major part, I was like, these guys must play the games and really like them. Well, not so fast. I saw an article on Gizmodo titled, Adding Rebel Ships to Rogue One was more than just an Easter egg. And when they say Rebels in the title, they're talking about Star Wars Rebels. And in the article, they discuss the Hammerhead Corvettes and how they came to incorporate them in the film. Here's what Rogue One producer John Knoll had to say. In the article, they discuss the Hammerhead Corvettes and how they came to incorporate them in the film. Here's what Rogue One producer John Knoll had to say. Using hammerheads came out of discussions a bunch of us had about what should the Rebel fleet really consist of, Noel explained. He knew of a few obvious ones, but to get the definitive answer, he approached the story group. They said, well, they could have the hammerhead Corvette. And they showed me some images from Rebels. So that prompted me to grab the model and make a movie version of it. And we had that underway as a background ship when we were fleshing out some of the story beats of what happens in the space battle. Suddenly, I needed a ship that could act as a tugboat, and I thought, well, let's use the hammerhead for that. So it kind of turned into a starring role. So as you can see, the inspiration for the hammerhead Corvette and Rogue One came from the Lucasfilm story group and Star Wars Rebels. If you recall, there is an episode from Season 2 where Princess Leia gives three hammerhead Corvettes to the Rebels. That said, we all know that the inspiration for those ships and Rebels came from the Old Republic. Still, it would have been nice to hear that they needed a, quote, tugboat ship, and someone remembered these hammerhead-style ships from the Old Republic, and that's how it came to pass. But alas, they're from Rebels. And by the way, I'm thinking the next Star Wars spinoff, that yet-to-be-named one, should take place between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back and then star a CGI version of a young Luke Skywalker and be called Hammerhead Corvette Summer. But um bum Okay, so that's it for Rogue One. And now I want to continue my Knights of the Eternal Throne chapter-by-chapter chapter deep dive by reviewing Chapter 2, Run for the Shadows. And it should be noted that although I haven't finished playing this chapter with a Republic character, um, seen enough, and I've actually uh, seen some of the, some of the cinematics to know that the, the differences between playing this, um, as someone who's aligned with the Empire versus someone who is aligned with the Republic really aren't all that different, despite, despite the fact that the entire chapter takes place on Droman Kass. 
So uh, let's see. Where do I want to begin? So, well, let's be- begin with the beginning. So as you recall, we ended Chapter 1 with an invitation to go to Dromenkas and meet with Darth Asina to discuss an alliance with the Sith Empire. Uh, you arrive on Dromenkas and rendezvous with Minister Lorman and... Uh, he's a, a great character and a delightful bit of comic relief. So I re- really enjoyed him. And anyway, he's there to escort you to Empress Asina. And as you're standing on this uh, taxi platform, there's a really nice callback to the novel Annihilation, which was written by Drew Carpishin. Note, uh, I have yet to read it. Sorry, Drew, but I'll get on that right away. Uh, but that novel takes place between the Battle of Ilum and Rise of the Hut Cartel, and it features, among other things, Theron Shan and then Moff Lorman, and so you get a little bit of the backstory about what happened in there. Uh, at this point, Balcorian appears, and he talks about his time with the Sith Empire, and there is an option to tell Balcorian that the Empire were his people, and that he basically abandoned them, and I like that that option better, better than some of the others. Um, at the end, though, and he doesn't dispute this either, but he does feel that the Sith Empire can aid in taking back the Eternal Throne, which, as we'll see throughout the story, is all he really cares about. Uh, so you uh, make your way to Darth Asina, and she basically indicates that uh, she wants to talk to you a little bit more in private. She, she's serious about this alliance and, and about doing things a little bit different than the... Uh, than Vitiate was as the Sith Emperor. And so you go to board her shuttle to take a ride over the jungle. Now, I like the little touches they do. There's these Imperial Royal Guards seen throughout, and as Asina walks by them, I don't know if you noticed that or not, they will kneel before her, which is, you know, small little thing, but 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 very cool nonetheless. So we're in the shuttle. Of course, it experiences engine trouble, and you and Asina are forced to abandon the ship before it crash, crashes. Um... Upon bailing out of the the craft, there is a fight with a primal jungle cat. It's really just a gold elite, but it just seemed much harder to kill than it ought to have been. Um, not impossible, and even as what a level one companion, Darth is seen as more than capable of healing you up. But it just seemed like it was a little bit more difficult than it than it needed to be. Just throwing that out there. Um, I like that we're seeing a part of Droman Kost that we haven't seen before. It's a nice mix of new and familiar. Uh, the weather, i.e. the lightning strikes, uh, hit the ground and we have to avoid those. It's another nice touch of the weather kind of, you know, playing a part and adding a little bit of realism, if you will, to, to Droman Kost. By the way, it's a good place to level up biochem. Uh, I don't think you can quite get to 600, but you can come pretty darn close. So if you have biochem, you might want to Make sure, you know, kill a few extra NPCs there, some of the mobs there, and be sure to level up biochem because it's a, it's a good opportunity to do this. So at this point, Lorman, excuse me, Minister Lorman informs Lana and Theron that the shuttle has crashed and that we're dead. Um, we don't buy it. So we decide, or meanwhile, so, but of course they, they're, they're skeptical, skeptical, right? But, uh, Anyway, we cut back to the jungle and where you and Asina go to try and find the crash shuttle and figure out who is behind this sabotage. When you arrive at the crash site, you discover that we are being hunted by none other than the, the Geno Haradin. 
And they are sort of the secret sect of bounty hunters who first appeared in Knights of the Old Republic. And I think they show up in the bounty hunter story as well. So they're not new, but very cool nonetheless. At least I thought so. We fight them. And after the encounter, we cut back to Lana and Theron, who receive a call from none other than Chancellor Suresh. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, news travels fast and she's heard of our demise and wants to take over the Alliance. We then cut back to the to us in the jungle as we try to find the Geno Herodin camp where we can plan, hope to take refuge uh, along the way. We try and uh, activate or repair some of these lightning spires to make traveling through the jungle a little less hair, uh, yeah, a little less harrowing. Uh, we do find the camp and we look around, and this point we do discover ourselves that Suresh is the one who hired hired the Geno Herodan and is trying to eliminate us as the commander and, of course, Empress Asina as well. And then at this point, a small shuttlecraft appears in the air and starts blasting us. So we escape into a nearby temple, and then as the entrance is sealed shut, we then find ourselves trapped, and we have to look for another way out because there is always another way out when it comes to these temples and caves. Uh, the scene then shifts to the Eternal Throne where Scorpio is, tells Valen the news of the Outlander's death. Valen reaches out with the Force and she can sense Valcor that Valcorian is still alive and thus the Outlander lives so she knows that we're not dead. But Scorpio says, hey, even though we're alive, that this would be a good time to strike out at the Alliance and that Odessin would not be the target. So they're up to something, right, at this point. We're not quite sure what they have in mind. They're not going to attack Odessin, but they are planning something, which we'll find out later at the end of the chapter. That then cuts back to us in the temple, and Valkorion shows up again, and he talks about the Sith temples and saying how he thought they were the key to immortality, but they really weren't. Uh, he says that he mastered death, and he also says that he, the Sith Emperor, was the first, was his first face, but that he has had many others over the year. And I think the best conversation option at this point is to ask him about Valkorion, at which point he'll tell you that he found him centuries ago and that Valkorion was a great warrior and used him as his vessel. And he says that he still wants to see Zakul restored to greatness. So, I need to do a little reading up on Valkorion because I am trying to sort out his time as the Sith Emperor and reconcile it against his time as Valkorion. I mean, could he be in both vessels at once? I'll be honest, I don't fully understand his power, but it is something that uh, I would like to find out more about, and I'll probably do some research on that myself. But but anyway, I think that's a great conversation option to take and... Uh, and then I'll see what else I can find out about Valkorion because it's a little bit confusing to me, perhaps for you as well. And in fact, I might bring someone on to talk about him at some point. I've got an idea there, um, but, we'll, but we'll see. But that'll be uh, down the road. So now we cut to Lana and Theron who are in an elevator because they're preparing to go out and look for us because, of course, they don't believe we're dead. Uh, Bay one contacts them and says Suresh is on her way to Odessin. So, you know, news travels fast and so do people, I guess. Uh, and she's going to address the Alliance. And by address, we mean take it over, right? 
Uh, so it's a tenuous situation. I mean, we try and encourage Bay One to just, you know, get her out of there. But, uh, I guess some of the folks in the alliance believe that we're in fact dead and they do want to hear her out. So as I said, it's a tenuous situation at this point. Uh, the elevator opens and then Lana and Theron are captured. Dun, dun, dun. And then we cut back to us in the temple where we find some scanners, uh, like little macro binoculars, which we can use to identify uh, little traps in, in the temple. And there is also a side quest to locate uh, relics, which I, I encourage you to do. It's a little bit tedious, but you do kind of get a nice uh, temporary ability, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and then straight ahead, we come across this some foul temple beast. It's not hard you just to, to, to defeat. But behind the area for which it was standing is where you will find the first relic in this tiny little alcove there. Uh, I actually missed that the first time I, I, I played through it. And I didn't, I didn't actually complete the quest on the first tune. So it's, it's easy to miss. And I would just, I'm just telling you where it is. Uh, the second relic can be found in a room with like this sort of spiked floor. Uh, not hard to get. And uh, here we get to start. Uh, talking a little bit with Asina, and she sort of gives some insights into her philosophy regarding the Sith Empire. And basically says she wants to abandon the old Sith ways to evolve and survive. And I said I liked her as a character. Uh, so we just continue on through this temple. Uh, the third relic, I believe, is in a circular room in front of this gated uh, area. Uh, and then the fourth relic is just down the stairs from the third relic. And I believe once you get the fourth relic, you need to go back upstairs to the third relic. It's kind of like a little bit of a puzzle here. And place the third relic uh, inside like the fourth to unlock uh, the gated room. And then you might even need to go back and uh, return the blade to, to where to where it was. And anyway, the whole goal is this opens the gate. And what you want to do here is scan for traps because there, there is a very narrow path for which you can enter that room and get the final relic. And claim the reward, um, as I said, and, and if you, if you step on one of the traps, there's like these little pressure plates there, uh, the gate will close and you'll burn to death. You will, you will die. So just be careful there. Uh, the reward you get is a temporary ability that replenishes your energy and some key abilities have no cooldown for six seconds. So it's a nice little, uh, gift, uh, like I said, and you know, comes in handy for the final fight, which of course, is when you reach the bottom, you find Lorman. Again, I guess that's Minister Lorman and the Geno Herodon waiting for you because that's how temples and caves work. You fight your way to the bottom, fighting all manner of creatures and traps. And then the bad guys just open a simple door and get ahead of you and are always waiting for you when you get to the end. And this place is no different. So you fight them, you defeat the, the, the Geno Herodin leader, and then you get to confront Minister Lorman. And then he informs you that Lana and Theron are prisoners, uh, which is a great little moment. So they, cause it cuts back to Lana and Theron. And remember I said they were just captured by a, a couple of lowly Imperial guards, in which point they dispatch them easily, to which Theron says, this is who you sent to capture us. I'm a little offended. And so there you go. And that's really the difference between uh, Lorman and Suresh, right? So Suresh hires the Geno Herodin to take out Empress Asina and the Alliance commander because she knows how dangerous and tough we are. And Minister Lorman sends three generic guards. Way to go there, Lorman. Uh, 
Asina uses like this force stasis on Lorman at this point, which kind of reminded me of what Kylo Ren does in The Force Awakens. And at which point you have three options. You have the option to let him go, which I don't think is really an option. You can make him a slave or you can kill him with Asina. Now, the death option is pretty good, and you might be inclined to just jump straight to that, but you should definitely give the slave option a try here. Because if you choose the slave option, Lorman will be there with you at the end of the conversation wearing a shock collar, and you will gain an ability to shock him. And it's fun, right? I mean, um, not only that, but after the chapter, you get this awesome email from Darth Asina, and I'm going to just read part of it right now. So it's from Empress Asina. The subject of the email is Lorman's enslavement, and this is what she writes. Lorman has taken well to the slave role you suggested, almost too well. At first, I suspected his obedience was a trick, but I found no evidence to support this during several lengthy interrogations. I've only, I've had only one minor incident with him so far. I found him clutching something late one evening as I approached his cell. When I asked for the object, he grudgingly handed it over with an almost defiant look. It was the old minister rank insignia that he somehow held onto. It is disturbing to think the man cowering before me as he transcribes this message was once our minister of logistics. He remains a powerful reminder that the weak need chains. And, you know, I don't always read these emails. I mean, I usually get around to it, but they're great. They're, 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 they're nice little touches. And some of them are especially good and must read. And, and this is just, this is one of those. I just love that line. You know, it is disturbing to think the man cowering before me as he transcribes this message. I mean, that's great. So she basically had him write this message telling him what a weak uh, slob he was. It was just great. So I really, really enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and then from this point, we then, uh, the scene then cuts to a Desen. Uh, Suresh arrives to inform the Alliance that we're dead and take over. And of course, we arrive as she's making her big speech. We walk through the crowd, much to everyone's surprise. Suresh tries to run, but it's not her day. Uh, there is an option to punch her. I don't like that one. And I, you know, I know it's weird. I mean, not weird, but I don't like the idea of hitting a woman even in a game. And it's a strange line to draw because I don't mind fighting them in combat in a game or even killing them. But a slap or a punch just doesn't sit well with me. So I, I, I tend to not take those options, even if I'm playing a female character, by the way. But anyway, uh, Suresh tries to guilt us into not executing her, but really, it's the only option. I don't know what happens if you let her go, and I'm not sure I ever will, and so I just choose that option each and every time, which is to just flat out shoot her, and, and you know, that's it, because she's just an, just a, one of those, she's a great character, but one that I hate as well, and I, I was just very satisfying to just see her end like this, and I hope that's sort of like the, the Canical, the ending that they make canon, if you will, as far as Star Wars The Old Republic is concerned. All right, so after this, you make your way to the war room, and several companions express their relief to see us alive. Galt makes the jokes about a life insurance policy. I really love that guy. 
and then you have this final conversation with Darth Asina where you have the option to ally with her or not. I generally prefer uh, to accept the alliance at this point. And then we cut to the gravestone and where the cargo freighter, freighter Redala is in trouble. Koth comes to the rescue, rescue. He brings the freighter on board, saving it from the clutches of the Eternal Fleet. But it turns out that it's an elaborate ruse by Scorpio and Valen. This is what Scorpio was talking about earlier in the chapter. And the chapter ends with them on board the gravestone. And then we just wait to see what happens next in chapter three. So overall, I really like this chapter. It had a great blend of humor. The conversation of what to do with Minister Lorman reminded me a bit of the conversation that Han and Finn had in The Force Awakens about what to do with Captain Phasma. Uh, also, uh, I talked about the email that you received from Darth Asina if you choose to enslave Minister Lorman. If you kill Suresh, you get a great email from Sup- Supreme Chancellor Maidon, I guess who's the Chancellor of the Republic. And in fact, why don't I read part of that to you now as well? And again, it's from Supreme Chancellor Maidon. The subject is former Chancellor Suresh, and it says, Commander, please delete this message after reading. Your execution of former Republic Chancellor Suresh puts me in a bind. As the Republic's leader, I have no choice but to publicly condemn such actions. You may even see whole recordings of a speech where I paint you in a rather unpleasant light. I already regret my colorful language. But let it be known from one leader to another that I personally have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for your bold actions. Suresh was a blight on the Republic, and I'm better off, we are all better off, without her poisoning our way of life. You have my sincere thanks for ending her reign of deception, and my deepest apologies for the unsavory names I'm about to call you in my next speech. Uh, Jebavel Maidan. Supreme Chancellor of the Galactic Republic. So that was just an email I like, especially like that line. And my deepest apologies for the unsavory names I'm about to call you in my next speech. So I thought, uh, good, good fun there. So that is it for Chapter 2. Next week, I'll talk about Chapter 3. And with that, I definitely hear the music. So that can mean only one thing. You've managed to survive another half hour listening to Episode 21 of the State of the Old Republic podcast. I'm your host, Ted, and I thank you for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and Buzzsprout. You can also listen to the show directly from the show site, which is currently SOTORpodcast.com, and there is an RSS feed where you can subscribe to the podcast directly. If you have a question for the show, you can email me at SOTORpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet your questions to at Sotor Podcast and be sure to follow me on Twitter to get the latest information on the podcast. Look for episode 22 on January 24th, 2017. And remember the Sith Code, cake is alive.